0: Hello and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsloot, and today we have a bumper round table with musical chairs. I'm joined by Chad O'Carroll, boss of NK News and NK Pro, and we'll be cycling two guests in and out in two shifts, so stay tuned as we go through some of the major news stories of last week. In round one, we are joined by retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp formerly of United Nations Command. Have I got that correct? Yes. Wonderful. And we're joined by Jongmin Kim, intrepid reporter for NK News. Welcome, Jongmin.
1: Good morning.
0: So, Steve, you've been on the podcast before, way back on episode 29, recorded in July 2018. Can you remember it? Yes. Welcome back on the show. Uh, I mainly wanted to get you back because you are my go-to expert on all matters related to the Armistice, the Demilitarized Zone, the Joint Security Area, and the Northern Limit Line, or the NLL. And uh, we'll be touching on a few of those issues today. So uh, thanks for listening to the most recent episodes and thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. All right. Now, the big story last week, one that overshadowed President Moon Jae-in's speech before the General Assembly of the United Nations, in which he spoke about an end of war declaration and peace between the two Koreas, was a South Korean man who somehow ended up on the northern side of the Northern Limit Line and was killed by North Korean soldiers. Uh Chad Jungmin, which of you wants to walk us through the basics of the story? Set the scene for us. Uh,
1: I'll do it. Uh, the story first came out as a Ministry of Ocean and Fisheries worker uh, going missing after being on a patrol boat, Mugunghwa Number 10, near the uh, Soyangpyeong Island near the northern limit line. Um, at first, it was just a story about a missing official, but afterwards. Things escalated, and the military, uh, South Korean military, told reporters that um, actually the North Korean soldiers shot him dead in the North Korean waters, and that they understand that this man um, intended to defect to North Korea, but without giving enough evidence to the reporters. Um, afterwards, um, South Korean go- uh, government, including the Blue House, they Issued several statements, um, actually very strongly worded statements, coming out of the Moon administration that this is a crime against humanity and that North Korea should take responsibility for everything and so on and so forth.
0: Did the uh, Did the Blue House use the word manhang, which is uh, Atroci- atrocity? Yeah. It did actually use yeah, that in the yeah. statements. Okay, that's interesting. All right.
1: Um, so, yeah, that was very strongly worded. And um, North Korea actually responded. And mm. if you remember, after June, all the communication lines were cut off. Um, but uh, South Korean part uh, consulted with the UN command actually to send um, to request North Korea for explanation for the case. And they actually did. Um, what North Korea's account of the story is a bit different from the South Korean military's account. Okay, they well, say, I, want
0: to come, I want to come back to that one. Okay. Uh, uh, Steve Thump, what, what are the normal rules of engagement um, on the southern side of the, uh, the, the NLL or the demilitarized zone? If a person is spotted trying to move from South Korea to North Korea, apparently in an attempt to defect, uh, what
2: can soldiers do? What are they allowed to do? Well, typically, we can uh, restrain people if you can grab them, but you're not supposed to shoot at them, or you're not supposed to shoot at helicopters or boats or anything like that going to the other side. Um, is that actually written down in the rules of engagement? Like, do well, not shoot. I haven't seen the latest rules of engagement. Um, this is, you know, my recollection from when I was working up there. Yeah, but. Uh, and by the way, rules of engagement are usually classified oh. um for instance, the n l l is defined in the armistice rules of engagement, and uh for many years was a secret line. I think it was downgraded to confidential, but it's still classified or it was classified hmm. um and and so that's always kind of been an absurd uh yeah uh, de facto border to me when the thing is classified in the, <laughs> the rules of engagement. Um, and so in the rules of engagement, they're, they're usually classified because you don't want the bad guy to know exactly what your leash is. It's right. like the cat that knows how far the dog's leash goes yeah. and will just play with it right outside the end of that, uh, leash thing. And right. so, so rules of engagement are generally, uh, classified secret. However, I do know from uh, doing guard post inspections and stuff, yeah. um, and we would ask soldiers, hey, if you had a helicopter fly over going from south to north, what would you do? I'd try to shoot it down. No, you wouldn't try to shoot it down. <laughs> ah. And and so, you know, this was education that we were uh, conducting 25 years ago, and, wow. and that, that kind of education still goes on between the United Nations Command and the uh, units.
0: Because recently, uh, this was in June or July, we had a, a podcast in which we talked about a North Korean defected to South Korea, apparently redefecting back to the North by swimming across the Imjin-gang uh, and then making his way all the way into Kaesong. Uh, and I think it might have been me. Somebody on that Roundtable podcast said, you know, the South Koreans, if they'd seen him, may have shot him uh, to prevent him from crossing over. But you're saying that actually they probably wouldn't have shot him. They might have tried they, they, to apprehend him. They shouldn't him, have shot they him. They shouldn't have shot him. They might have, but that would have
2: been a breach of whatever right, the rules are. Right, right. And... and uh the you know once you make that water then you're good to go you're good to go Uh, if if it's thought to be a defector now if it was thought to be an infiltrator yeah then that would be a different case yeah that must
3: well that must be yeah difficult for a soldier i guess to figure out if it's infiltrator or defector
2: and so it's better to rule on uh, the side of safety and, and not kill an innocent person. So you say
3: this is actually one of those rare
0: instances in which the, the rule is not shoot first, ask questions later. Right. It's, it's
2: not like on the north side.
0: Okay, so there was my next question. So on the north side, if they see somebody crossing from their side to our side, from the north to the south,
2: uh, is it the norm for them to shoot? Well, we don't, we don't typically have that, so we don't know. Right. Um, but is there a pattern of, of them... Again, uh, people don't usually cross the DMZ going from uh, south to north. It happens occasionally, but I think if the person can get up to the guard post on the other side and turn themselves in, then they, they have a tendency to do that. Right. But right now, it's different in North Korea because of the COVID-19. And so I think they're shooting people coming in from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We'll
0: definitely come back to that later on. Uh, jong I want to return to you. So there was initially some confusion about this man from the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries. Was he trying to defect? Was he trying to commit suicide? Uh, my initial thought before, this, you know, uh, before the later events happened, my initial thought was that suicide was the more likely option because a lot of Koreans don't swim. And this was a very long distance. This was uh, from uh, The boat was supposed to be 10 kilometers south of the NLL. And so from there to the NLL and then to the northern coast would have been uh, 22 miles or uh, 40 kilometers. That would have been quite a long way to go.
1: Yeah, a lot of things just really don't add up. Um, the evidence that the South Korean military brought to the press briefing was that first the man was wearing a life jacket, which shows, which points to the intention to actually jump off the boat right. and that he left the slipper behind, but that was it. And the colleagues and the family members, they are right now arguing that he had no t- intention to defect or whatever, although he had some debt. Mm-hmm. Well, all Koreans have debt. Uh, after that, I said there are the difference between North Korean and South Korean accounts, right? There, there are two points that differ. One is whether or not he intended to defect, South Korean military, South Korean intelligence actually said that they had some sort of monitoring, intel, uh, monitoring uh, intelligence after monitoring audio signals that he intended to defect. But um, North Korean side of the story was that he just said he's a ROK national a couple of times mm-hmm. and that he stopped responding. And when um, he stopped responding, the North Korean soldiers allegedly fired Blank twice and he tried to run away. Um, so that was the North Korean side of the story. And because he was trying to run away, maybe they had to shoot him down.
3: Swim away, I guess. Well, yes. see, that- no,
1: he, the, the story said that it looked like he was going to flee.
3: Yeah, because <coughs> we were all in Yonpyeong as listeners know. Uh, Which Pyongyang yeah. typically is two islands, right? There's yeah. a bigger one and a smaller one. So Pyongyang and Pyongyang, And we were there back in May. Now the thing that I remember was like we couldn't really see North Korea very clearly. Mm. I mean, it was quite a hazy weather when we were there. Um, but even at the the highest points of vantage, we could barely make out mountains on the on the horizon. So if you're in the water, your view is gonna be extremely limited. So I was wondering just from a technical perspective, how did he navigate, how did he know which way to swim or to drift if If he was intending to go to North Korea, it would not be easy um, unless perhaps you brought a waterproof uh, cell phone or something with a lot of battery power that you could you could basically see on the map. Um, And then the other thing was uh, if he had swum that and it's about 25 miles, I think, from point to point uh, to where he showed up, um, the weather, you know, it would have been pretty cold overnight so he would have probably be in very low energy by the time he arrived in in towards the north korean soldiers and i like I, jeb bush <laughs> uh, yeah how but, would
1: he be able to like say yeah he wants
3: to defend. Now, St- Steve, you and i have talked about
0: this off off air uh do you want to share with us so you think that he had some knowledge of the currents and, and that he had a reasonable expectation that he would have ended up on a north korean coast
2: well, he was clearly a fishing guy. I mean, this was his job to be out there, and so he would have known the currents. My own experience, I went out with a defector group, that uh, the one that uh, throws the bottles with rice in them, rice and, and bibles, and we did that off the, an island just to the west of Kongwado, and it's amazing how fast those bottles were gone. Um, the currents... And, and I think it's got to, a lot to do with the high tides on the uh, west coast, but those currents were really fast. And so if he knew where the currents were, mm-hmm. which he would have if he was a fishing guy, um, he probably timed it that way and, and said, okay, this is a good day to do it. So technically he wouldn't have had to have done too much swimming. If he'd had a, fl-
0: a flotation device and or a, a vest, he could have just drifted well, and, along yeah, with they, the currents. They, they
2: said he had some other uh, flotation material yeah. with right. him. And that would have taken him quite rapidly to the north, you think? Well, I, I think it would have. It, it doesn't make the, the trip look as long as it does if right. he was actually having to swim it.
0: That's certainly true. But it's also true that those currents can also, if you misjudge, they can take, take you right out to uh, the Yellow Sea, right? He could have missed the, um, the, the bit of land that he was aiming at and could have ended up going out to the open seas between Korea and China.
2: Well, when I talked to the group. Uh that, that through the bottles, they said they put GPS devices in certain of them and they just go all the way up the uh, west coast of North Korea. We, we uh, Jongmin and I went on a
3: Ministry of Unification press junket a few weeks ago to meet angry residents complaining about those um, bottle launches, saying actually a lot of them get swept back in and they create trash and uh, mess and the rice starts going <laughs> rotten and I mean, it was interesting I, I must point out that the mou did locate these individuals who happen to have the same angry response as their you know the south korean government so the, take from the, that what you
2: will it's not to say that all of them right uh, make it up but uh, again because of the tides that creates uh currents uh, at certain times just like you know, Isung Shin, when he defeated the Japanese in 1598, he was able to use the tidal mm-hmm. currents, and and which are changing all the time. And right. So you know, if this guy knew the tides and and things like that, it's not inconceivable that that he would get a big push from the current. Chung what do we know about the man's actual
0: job uh, and and what he was? Was he normally on boats?
1: Uh, he was a pilot which means he is a person who regularly goes on the boat to inspect the fishing boats okay. near the area and at the time it was around the fishing uh like high time for mm-hmm. uh, fishing what do you call it the crabs
0: okay so crab season yeah yeah yeah, crab right.
1: season so he was out there inspecting the boats okay
0: now there was some confusion to me i know i'm doing my question a little bit out of order but there was some confusion about uh the timing of his leaving the boat and hitting the water mm. um I've heard different times, was it at night time, was it during the day, how long was he in the water? What can you tell us about that?
1: What's certain right now is that the colleagues made first report at 11.30. A.m.
0: Um, or p.m., please?
1: Uh, in, around noon. Okay. Uh, so, so uh, afternoon, actually. They found uh, they found that he didn't come to lunch at 11.30. I see. So, they tried to find him, but they couldn't find him. So, they reported to the Coast Guard around um, a little bit after noon, 12.00. Uh, 51, but um, he was missing um, since earlier in the morning, actually, 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. He said that he has some business he has to handle and got out of the steering house. And then that's the last time his colleagues saw him. So probably it's sometime between 1 a.m. and 11.30 that he jumped off the boat.
0: Now, couldn't that have been a euphemism for, I have to go to the, the toilet?
1: Yeah, that could have been, but that was the last time he was seen. Okay, so one so thirty, he was now. in the
0: wheelhouse. He leaves, and he's not seen again. And then at eleven thirty, they say, "Oh, he didn't turn up for lunch." And then at twelve fifty-one, they report him
1: missing. And then afterwards, South Korean military got into trouble for the delayed response because um, uh, it's afterwards, it it uh, people found out that military actually spotted the guy at around three uh, thirty p.m. Mm. Um, in near the near the Gangneung Bando, uh, which is... Uh, de- I
3: can't remember. <laughs> Dingsan-gut. <laughs> Dingsan-gut. Uh, yeah. He was
1: spotted near Dingsangot. Okay. Um But at, around after six hours, he was shot dead. So what did the military do for the six hours? Right, so
0: what time was he shot dead? Uh, 9.40 right, yeah. p.m. And so we're quite we're quite sure of that time. Yes. Okay, so and he may have gone missing around sometime 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and then the following night at 9... PM, that's when he was shot dead. Yeah.
1: And then um, South Korean military, explana- uh, it, their explanation was that because it was in North Korean waters, they had limitations uh, to what they, what they can do, the operation that they can do. Although they knew someone was there and they said that they wasn't sure if it was the same guy. Right. And North Korean account was that they had to, they were like reading for some sort of decision and the captain actually made the decision to shoot him down but um also another difference in the story is that south korean military thought they burned the body yes but the north korean side said that due to covid guidelines um we had to Burn the flotational material, not the body because the body was gone after 10 rounds of gunshot. And that
3: that flotation device, I wonder, I mean, you know, if you go on a ferry, there are often emergency flotation devices and small... You mean a ring-shaped lifesaver? There are also small, like, rowing boat-style shaped things that you can jump dump into the water and use. I, I mean, surely they know if there's something missing from the vessel he was on. Right, I could say and, this was missing. Yeah, yeah, and that would give some clue as to what, whether what they saw. It, been...
0: yeah, there's so many odd details here. So it seems like he may have been in the water for almost 20 hours from the point at which he left the boat on the southern side of the north, uh, northern limit line to the point at which he was uh, shot and apparently killed by North Korean soldiers. Uh, and then we have this this very curious statement that was remarkable both in the the speed that in which it came out and the uh, the contents, uh, win Right? Mm. That's uh, North Korea is not known for rap, re, uh, reacting so rapidly. But, Kim Jong Un apologized. And with a personal yeah. apology from Kim Jong Un.
3: But there was also some criticism for South Korea uh, for being public and making allegations, and uh, it made me think well. If you're going to cut the military communication lines as north korea did in june if you're going to cut the blue house presidential line what do you expect (laughs) you know there is there are secret channels but um it's not clear that they're useful for emergency communication and those you know that presidential hotline was created for exactly this reason and then kim jong-un north koreans moaning and whining about the fact that things are in the public well
2: don't cut the communication line then.
0: Steve, do you want to comment on that? You've been here uh, enough time to see lots of different uh, incidents.
2: Well, the, the, just going to the communications line briefly, when they say cut, it means somebody just flipped a switch off. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the North and South planted a great big uh, cable over on the west side of the JSA back in 2000, summer 2000. And, and so I think they could handle thousands of phone calls on that. Thousands of lines, so it's um, mere matter matter of just switching uh, a, a thing on and off, and so for them to to be able to communicate quickly would would be take nothing,
3: right? But they'd need to, they would need to know that there was an inbound request to flip it back on if it's been flipped off,
2: right? I don't know. Um, when I was in the United Nations Command, after when we were going through a period of the North Koreans not talking to us, we would still make a communications check a few times a day and still kept the stuff open. Mm-hmm.
0: You mean a, a, an actual uh, a communication check via wires?
2: Right. Or You'd somebody on going the out with a mountaintop? see if they'd answer it. Okay. Yeah.
1: And it seems the statement, um, the statement was actually from the United Front Department, which is in charge of, in charge of South Korea affairs. It seems that it was the... Um, NIS to UFD line that was used as communications actually. So yeah, it okay. Was
0: on, so yeah. not military to military or government to government, but United to Yeah. Uh, it it, seems it was NIS and NIS. UFD. Yeah. Okay. And do we know where, how, how, and where they're communicating? No, no. idea. Yeah, I found the, but, the language gone, change.
3: But just to say, yeah, I mean, th- if you think about this starting as a Coast Guard type of case, then the military are involved. um it wouldn't necessarily be uh, the top priority for Coast Guard to think, oh, let's contact the NIS to get them to use their secret UFD line to see if we can solve this bilaterally without it going into the media. Right. And again, I just think this goes to show like if, if you... If if there are going to be is if there's potential for crisis and uh, problems and incidents in the future, it would be prudent for those lines to be kept open, switched on, whatever you want to de- however you want to describe it, um, because this is exactly why it helps to be able to talk quickly and yeah.
2: confidentially.
0: Now, Steve, I, I just noticed you sharing a map there with Jongmin.
2: Tell tell us what what you've just showed. Well, I was she had mentioned the Gangbyeong Peninsula, right? Yes. Yeah, and. It's exactly uh, so it shows up here on this armistice map. Right, you brought the actual maps
0: of the 1953 armistice with you. And, yeah.
2: And so, a uh, a current that would go from Kangwado up to North Korea, the west coast of North Korea, would go right past there. So okay, so you're saying you, it was an easy target you got in to the hit. Water there, it would just take you right past there. So
0: yeah. So you think it was a fairly safe bet for him that he would have ended up there if he jumped in at that point at that time, given the way the currents were moving?
2: Obviously, it wasn't a safe bet. Yeah, well. um, <laughs> well. the, the, uh, but, but he would have had the ability to research this and uh, figure out where the, probably the likely place to do it is based right. on the currents.
0: Now, the, the statement says, uh, what does the statement Jongmin say clearly, the North Korean statement, does it say clearly that they had to kill him uh, because of the risk of coronavirus infection?
1: No, they frame it very, very vaguely. Yeah. They had to burn the flotational material following the COVID-19 guideline. But the shooting itself, it's framed as, according to the soldier's account, right. um, he murmured and stopped responding to the soldier. So that's one explanation that they're giving. And then after they fired blank, um, he sort of moved. Um, yeah, that
0: was, there was some very odd wording there. I made a, a note of this. That uh, uh, it almost—I I can't tell from reading the Korean at some points—is he on land or in water? Because it says mm. uh, that he's trying to run away, uh, and then also that he's trying to lie down flat and he's trying to cover his body with something. Yes, and which—and
1: it's all like it seemed. It's not it's not like yeah. it's not like they framed it as he tried to flee.
0: And the murmuring also is weird because the first time that the North Koreans engage with him, they're approximately eighty meters away from the man is what the statement says. Yes. And they ask him his identity and they say the Korean word there is that he murmured that he was a South Korean and then stopped. But hold but up, how, though. How, how, how good is your hearing at 80 meters? Can you hear somebody murmuring?
3: Oh, but hold coming. up, though. D- isn't there also something in the statement that says a North Korean vessel found him first?
1: Yeah, a fishing, a fishing vessel reported it to the military unit. But
3: we don't know okay. how close they got. Right. It doesn't so say. So they might have spotted him in the sea. Maybe he actually got onto the coastline and that's where this... Yeah, but if you got it's to the very,
0: coastline, very you wouldn't unclear. stay in the water voluntarily, would you? You'd say, "I'm at the coast now. I can, you know, ditch this uh, flotation device and safety vest and get on the it's land." Very it's very odd. And the, the murmuring at 80 meters, Chongmin, do you mm-hmm. buy that?
1: I mean, like, how can you tell he's murmuring? It's 80 meters away, and yeah. also, and um, also, he although he murmured, he did say he's a ROK national. Right. So they can hear that part. Which is kind of like showing your identity. They argue. UFD uh-huh. argues that it wasn't clear who he is, right. but he did say he's an RK national. Maybe
0: right? they wanted him to say he's national identification
2: number. Maybe. Yeah, shout that out there. But, Steve, what, what and and the assumption there is that this is actually what the soldiers said and did. Um, right. This is what's being reported. Mm-hmm. And clearly the soldiers might have made up a different story amongst themselves or the leadership might have made up a different story just because it was starting to look bad. And they, these soldiers maybe followed their orders to the letter, which was kill anybody trying to get in, and then uh, you burn them. Now, yeah. you
0: likened this to something that was done at, uh, at Venice back in the Middle Ages, right? Right, right.
2: Uh, during the, uh, the Black Death uh, that, that swept through Europe a few times over a 60-, 70-year period, the Venetians actually burned the bodies of, of the victims of the Black Death.
3: Yeah, and just just on that, um, it is important to bear in mind the broader context. So early, mid-August, we started hearing reports about North Korea really uh, increasing the um, uh, durability of their border shutdown. Mm. So a uh, call for all Sino-North Korean trade to end in order to just ensure there's no risk of unwittingly importing it amongst packaging, cargo boxes, etc. Right. And then um, back in, uh, and, and we also heard that confirmed from uh, UN agencies in Pyongyang who said they could no longer import stuff. But then in September, the Daily NK did a couple of reports, um, one of which purported to have a photo of a new regulation, which is the shoot to kill uh-huh. stuff up on the, the China-North Korea border. And it said something like, if any uh, animal or uh, human comes towards a soldier in the approximately two kilometer exclusion zone they should be shot upon sight Mm. it doesn't say shot shoot to kill but shot upon sight and it also adds that this policy should be enacted throughout the republic which would suggest that it's also in place down uh in the even close to the nll right so um and the the reason for this seems to be that with the north korean military parade coming up on october 10th they're very very paranoid about the potential of the virus being imported and spreading at that parade which if you think about it is going to be like a huge petri dish of human beings all assembled at one place very risky move certainly it could be
0: now chad before the statement came out from north korea you wrote a piece on thursday saying that this incident smells trouble for president moon why
3: is that well um optically just having done delivered a un general assembly speech obviously right. that uh, talked up and the need for a war and declaration to have this actually play out almost almost simultaneously. We heard that the Blue House over the weekend actually was aware about this um, just before the General Assembly speech went what? live. Now what were they, how much were they exactly aware of
4: Chong-win?
1: Uh President Moon wasn't was their argument. Um, some of the people in the National Security Office like uh, saw Wook, they yep. would have known, but um, they didn't report it to President Moon yet. And so their story is that after President Moon, um, the speech went out. The president heard about it, and he was angry that this happened. And he and was. And it was like, a
3: pre-recorded speech as well.
1: And the and the video was recorded on September fifteenth. Yeah. Ah, they could have changed bit. it, but
3: they couldn't. Re- I mean, well, the, it the logistics tough. of filming it all, getting it to the UN. The UN right. is very slow. You know, I I can't imagine it would have been easy to do. Um, And probably they wouldn't have been able to know the full fallout of of all of this. I mean, I think it's not something that would have been ordered from above, but it doesn't look good. And it makes Moon uh, look a bit stupid domestically and internationally to have made all these calls and made so much effort after the destruction of the liaison office. And people are still being killed. I mean, this is the first South Korean... To be killed since the uh, well, Yun do when there was all the artillery, Which obviously is late 2010. 2010.
0: Now, uh, to to wrap up, we have uh, this uh, apology, uh, this personal apology from Kim Jong Un, tacked onto the end of the statement from the uh, United Front Department. I've heard uh, varying accounts. One said it, it sounded sincere. Another that it sounded insincere. Another said that it was the most significant apology that North Korea has ever released since the Axe Murder Incident of 1976. Six. Six. Steve, your comment. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's uh, probably accurate, but I also think this is a different time, and uh, we've got a uh, North Korean president or North Korean leader that's actually met with the South Korean right. and uh, uh, U.S. presidents. And so I think that maybe international diplomacy might be a little different than what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago.
3: Right. And, and Christopher Green... Um, who's one of our contributing analysts on Pro? he made a really good point over the weekend, which yeah. is when North Korea does something that either leads to spectacular failure or something um, embarrassing like this, and there is a, a clear amount of evidence, um, they will come clean about it. For example, the 2012 April effort to launch a satellite, they invited loads of journalists there and it failed. They obviously couldn't spin it as being a success, as they had done in 2009 and in 98. Uh, and in 1998. And Chris's argument was that you know there's probably South Korean Intel uh, video potentially of the burning um, signals interception that if it all came out would be deeply embarrassing for the North and show how evil some of their soldiers were. And so mm. in that context, it was just a, a prudent diplomatic move. But Chris's argument is we shouldn't read too much into it as being a sign of a, you know, bigger outreach or bigger positive. I know. think you probably
0: agree with that, Steve. Yes, Jongmin, yep. you too. Yeah. All right, and that marks the end of the first half of our marathon bumper podcast. So thanks to our guests, Steve and Jongmin. Oh, Steve, final I, thought
2: from you? Yeah. Um, we keep talking about the NLL. Yes. And uh, if I could just say something real quickly about that, Please. it's not an armistice measure, but it's a measure created by the United Nations to make command to keep our uh our side in compliance with the armistice the, the armistice has some real fluffy words about you won't enter the contiguous waters of the other side and contiguous waters are not there is no definition for contiguous waters right mm-hmm. uh, and they're not uh, a legal definition like territorial waters are and so the the nll was generally drawn even though it's a the the Coordinates themselves are, were classified. I think they still are. It was drawn about three nautical miles off the North Korean coastline except for where uh, You have islands there and so then the uh, the thing is about uh, It's using the median uh, rules, so it's halfway between the island and the North Korean uh, thing so this guy could have quickly been inside or across the NLL and by the time the South Koreans saw him, he is in uh, North Korean territorial waters.
0: Right, and and for South Korean boats to chase him over that would risk the, a possible confrontation. But it's
2: an armistice violation, by our side, ah. and then the United Nations command has to go out and send out a team and say, oh yeah, they violated the armistice; they shouldn't have done that. Right. Okay. Now, is it just the, the case, very briefly, because we're over time? But
0: the the NLL that wasn't. Um, spelled out in the armistice, is that because uh, it was mostly land-based fighting by the, the yeah. time of the signing of the armistice, that there really wasn't a North Korean Navy and the South Korean Navy? They weren't doing any naval clashes at that time?
2: Yes, and, and the uh, United Nations Command had tried to get some kind of a maritime boundary there. And I, I had to research this a lot back in 99 as we had that series of the, the general first... officer talks oh, uh, on... On the NOL after the uh, first uh, Yangpyeongdo battle, it's actually one of the Chinese uh, colonels that says, "Hey, look, we've got people dying all over the place. There's nobody out there on the oceans. You guys control all that. We'll let whoever signs this peace treaty next year figure all that out." This is talking we're about not, the f-
0: 1954.
2: Right. We're not getting into that here. Okay.
0: Uh, Because, of course, it was supposed to be a stopgap measure only to last until a proper peace treaty, which was supposed to be worked out in in, uh, Geneva in 1954, but never was.
2: Right. The idea was the governments involved would get together and have a meeting within six months, you know, peace conference within six months. Right. And everybody expected the armistice to go away in a year or two. Right. And so now we're, uh, what, 67 years later, using this... Very antiquated document. All
0: right. Uh, that's where we, we stop now. We say goodbye to our guests and bring two more people in. So thanks, Steve and Jongmin. right. We now welcome two new guests uh, to our uh, Bumper Roundtable podcast. Chad's still here with me. But we welcome Colin Zwirko and Min Chao Choi. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yes, you have. Thank um, you. Unlike Good morning. me. <laughs> and we will be discussing coffee, Bridges to Nowhere, ICBMs and TELs, and Doctors Without Borders. And uh, that's probably all that we have time for today, although I, I do, I was a bit sad when I heard very late last night from Minxiao via text message that there's also accordions to be talked about. So, accordion to my taste in music, we should definitely talk about those instruments, but it may not be on this episode. Minxiao, are you okay with that? I'm
4: okay. We can talk about it later.
0: All right, so Minchao, coffee in North Korea, who drinks it?
4: Uh, well, uh, it's a luxury item, similar to how we might think of a fancy cocktail. Um, you'd find it in the capital, probably not available as brewed coffee in townships or in villages, uh, almost always drunk in public, and a conspicuous consumption good.
0: Now, coffee comes in many forms. Is there also instant coffee available in North Korea?
4: Yes. Instant coffee in the sachets, or stick coffee, is quite popular. Um, You can buy it in department stores in Pyongyang, big bags of it.
0: Is that also a luxury item, the the instant coffee?
4: Maybe the way we would think about chocolate. It's still a nice little treat, but available to some North Koreans. And also uh, instant coffee in jars, uh, or in other forms other than stick, are available over the Chinese border.
3: And Pocker coffee in yes, cans. We,
4: and Pocker coffee in the little milky yeah. cans. I
3: probably need a lawyer to talk about that.
0: But, but didn't we do a podcast on that, Chad? I feel like we did a podcast once on your investigation into the, the coffee cans from Pocker. We
3: Pocker were not very happy about that, so probably should not talk about it too much. All right. Are they still uh, there? Well, um, I I don't know if, that, if Pocker is still there because there's just really been no photos coming out of Pyongyang. To let us really have an insight into that. But uh, the last time we saw it there was like late 2019. Probably is, there's probably old cans still there. North Koreans keep a lot of stuff that just goes past sell by and sell by dates and they keep keep it in in stock. But Poker were under investigation when I wrote an article about this by the Singaporean government and we never actually found the outcome of of that investigation. Was that because
0: of the aluminium in the cans or
3: the coffee itself? Uh, No, because of uh, suspicions of a a knowledgeable salesperson in POCA in Singapore Uh. selling it knowingly to North Korea via third countries. Uh. Uh, uh, There is no lawyer present, but uh, if there was, I would have to say um, POCA, of course, deny this. And uh, uh, they claim that they're doing nothing wrong and they have no control over where... Uh, buyers resell coffee to. And these are only allegations. These are only yeah. allegations. Uh,
0: now, so we've talked about uh, coffee in an instant form, coffee in a canned form. You mentioned brewed coffee. So is there espresso in Pyongyang?
4: Yes, uh, according to our sources who have been there quite often, um, tours through courier tours or through our friends chosen Exchange. Right. And... Uh, coffee shops are co- popping up all over the capital it's become immensely popular especially because it has such a high margin uh mm. for pricing yeah. you can charge six u.s dollars for a coffee which is basically the equivalent of a week's wages Goodness me. uh but foreigners and tourists will snap it up because they're dying for a good coffee
0: Yeah, now one of the the sources you named in your story is uh, Ian Bennett, who has been on this podcast before, back in 2018. Hi to Ian, and a big shout out to him from all here at uh, NK News. He and I first met in Pyongyang, actually, last year in April on a marathon tour. Uh, Lovely fellow. And we both went to, uh, oh no, actually my group went to a coffee shop at the Pyongyang Hotel, where the late uh, Michael Hay once uh, kept a room. Uh, And there were 18 of us and each coffee took something like five to ten minutes to make. It was a very torturously long process, and the last people had to really gulp down their uh, espressos so that we could go back to the bus on time. They're not good at churning out high, quantity, uh, high quantities of coffee just yet.
4: No, not yet. But they will serve it with panache and flair, and a yes, lot of show. Yes, latte art. Mm-hmm.
0: That's right. They were the the lady was very, very focused on producing the best quality latte art uh, that she could, which is perhaps why it took so long to get the cups of coffee out. Okay. So, what is it? What's the significance of uh, of all this coffee uh, and the coffee craze in Pyongyang, Minchaeus?
4: Sure. Uh, I think we see through the coffee craze that uh, Pyongyang or North Korean culture in general is beginning to accept markers of what may have once been Western decadence. Uh, obviously, coffee is not indigenous to the Korean peninsula and doesn't right. fit with the Juche ideology, but people love coffee. It grips the palate. Um, and that the because it's entirely dependent on imports from China, um, we can see that through trade. Uh, the sector is not very transparent. So for example, Allegedly, in 2015 and 2016, China exported zero amounts of coffee, either roasted coffee or coffee products, to the DPRK, even though we know it went to the DPRK. Um, But we can still see some movement of coffee products over the border, um, and that's significant.
0: Have we seen actual coffee beans, roasted or unroasted, uh, on sale in Pyongyang?
4: So according to Ian, no, he's never seen coffee beans for sale. He's seen them roasted at a uh, North Korean coffee shops, so similar to the microbreweries that Pyongyang is famous for. Right. A lot of these stores will do everything on site.
0: Uh-huh. Now it's interesting because in South Korea, uh, you know, I'm uh, not quite a coffee snob, but I'm halfway there. Uh, I've noticed in South Korea that when a coffee shop roasts its beans on site, a lot of the time those machines, those roasting machines are made in Japan. And I, I just thought I wonder whether uh, in North Korea they're using Japanese-made uh, roasting machines because that would be a bit of a controversy, I think, if they did. Hmm.
4: I think we need to ask Ian. I am not. I have no visibility on uh, the kinds of roasters they use.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, now, turning to uh, Colin, you dropped a bit of a bomb on us last week when you reported... The, news of, uh, NK, sorry, the results of an NK News investigation, that Kim Jong-un had secretly visited a key nuclear weapons-related factory on uh, America, American Independence Day back in 2018, less than a month after the
5: famous June 2018 Singapore summit. Where exactly did he visit? So uh, Kim Jong-un went to the, it's called the March 16 factory. It's located in the city of Pyongsong, just north of Pyongyang. And uh, this is a factory that produces all sorts of vehicles. Uh, they, in the past, had a sort of a joint venture going on with a Russian company. Um, they've uh, Some analysts have found through comparing photos that they are importing Chinese trucks and then modifying them to be both uh, you know, industrial, for industrial use and for what's called transporter erector launchers, these are for transporting missiles. It's it's unclear how much of this they're doing uh, under their own, you know, producing from scratch, uh, or how much they are still modifying Chinese trucks. Uh, but uh, the reason why it's important is because this is where the the largest ICBM called the Hwasong 15 uh, was on its transporter truck uh, the night that they tested it uh, back in November 2017.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you uh, manage to, to find out about this uh, secret trip in, uh, on 4th of July 2018 to that factory?
5: So the first clue that we have into this, so what happened was Kim Jong-un on July 4th, 2018, took a little tour of, uh, you know, retracing his steps from the night of November 29, 2017, when they tested the Hwasong-15 ICBM, which they claimed uh, was able to strike the U.S. mainland and was a very big deal for completing uh, the North Korean nuclear program uh, to be able to threaten the U.S. mainland at any time on these mobile launchers, right? On that night of November, Kim Jong-un went to the factory to check out the missile on its truck, on its TEL, and then moved with it over to a nearby field about a couple kilometers up the road, and then they tested it from there. So last year, in November, I think... Uh, 2019 now? Yeah, in November 2019, NK Pro uh, released an investigation, according to uh, multiple sources, that Kim Jong-un went to a memorial that they built at the site of this test. Ah, uh-huh. so in they, the field? Yeah, in a field, in an empty field up in Pyongyang uh, just a few kilometers away from this factory... Uh, they built a monument in February 2019, and then Kim Jong-un visited it uh, or in February 2018, and then Kim Jong-un visited it on July 4th, 2018. So we, we have pictures of this monument. It has a, it's set in stone. It's, this, it's got this sculpture of the Hwasong-15 missile. And uh, so we had multiple sources telling us that Kim Jong-un went there on that day. Yeah. Now, it would make sense that he also went to the factory on that day because it's nearby. It's just a couple kilometers down the road, but we didn't have any information about that. Now, what I noticed in a documentary film that was released earlier this year of Kim Jong-un visiting that factory in 2019, uh, you see a sign in the background that shows uh, uh, encouraging workers to fulfill the instructions that Kim Jong-un made on July 4th, 2018 at that factory.
0: Okay. And w- that was the clue that let you know that he'd been there in 2018?
5: Yes. So, okay. the the sign in the background says he went there on that day Uh and you can't see the full sign, but right. uh, after analyzing it, you can tell that it says that uh, the date clearly, July fourth, twenty eighteen, uh, and um, but the fact that he was also at the memorial on the same day, it all comes together and shows us that he was retracing his steps of the missile launch.
0: So this was neither his first nor his last visit to the factory. You've right. A few right. Times, yeah.
5: Yeah. This he went again publicly in June, or at least they published it in June, twenty nineteen. In state media, uh, but they called it by a different name and tried to cover it up in you know, a half-hearted way. Analysts were always going to be able to figure out that that was the same factory.
0: Now, Colin, you, you have quite the eagle eye and you're good at, uh, at looking at um, photographs and satellite photos and, and footage from documentaries and spotting these things out there. Uh, when, you, when you realized, hey, this is the same factory, did it give you a little frisson of, uh, of thrill?
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I just wonder. <laughs> I wondered you know, how many people had spotted this before, because I was just going back through old uh, documentary footage. So, uh, you know, just searched around and tried to find out who who was talking about it, and no one had talked about that. Huh. Now, uh, why visit. do you think
0: North Korea was so secretive about that visit on July Fourth,
5: 2018? Yeah, so the what it comes down to, I think, is. Uh, this was a few weeks after the Singapore summit, mm. and it was a key anniversary. We which,
0: which have to remind listeners, things were still hopeful then, right? It, it, yeah. t- t- things were looking good for uh, progress between the U.S. and North Korea. Yeah. Seems like so long ago.
5: Trump met Kim Jong-un in Singapore June 12, uh, 2018. So uh, Kim Jong-un goes back to North Korea. They, they're six months after, uh, you know announcing the Swasong 15 test, uh, or seven months after, and it was this very big deal for completing their nuclear program. And then they basically just went quiet on promoting it, starting, you know, a couple months into 2018. Uh, they're starting negotiations with South Korea, they're going to uh, Kim Kim Jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, goes to the Olympics in South Korea. Right. Things are looking so hopeful. Um, they uh, Kim Jong-un signs agreements with Moon Jae-in in April, the South Korean president, and Trump in June 2018, uh, promising to work towards denuclearization. And you can get into the, the specifics of the language, but uh, Kim Jong-un never promised to, to halt his nuclear weapons development or ICBM development. He uh, promised a moratorium on testing. So right. we can't really expect that they would have, you know, Kim Jong-un would have uh, ordered everyone to stop what they're doing. Um, so it makes sense that he would go to this factory, but they kept it hidden mm. um, because um, there was some pattern. They, they got rid of anti-U.S. propaganda off the streets. Ah. They um, kind of just tamped down the public anti-U.S. messaging. We know that they kept this up uh, internally, but uh, it was just likely to to create space for negotiations with the U.S. and Trump.
0: Now, this factory, the, the March 16th, have I got the name right? Yeah. yeah. Is this the same factory that's currently being uh, renovated ahead
5: of the big military parade? Back in November 2017, when they tested this, uh, some uh, satellite imagery analysts noticed that they built this extra little uh, structure to help raise the... The truck, the missile that holds the truck to the, the TEL, so they can they can test raising the arm. Last year, they built a new building to do this permanently instead of a temporary building. And some other uh, analysts like Jeffrey Lewis and and uh, Dave Schmurler, they noticed that they built this new building. So um, they started these renovations in the last couple of years. The latest renovations of this factory are more like repaving the entire thing, building some new buildings. Um, a lot of yeah remodeling, renovating, they're rebuilding the building where they put the museum for showing all of Kim Jong-un's and Kim Il-sung's and Kim Jong-il's visits to the factory. So uh, the latest construction in summer 2020 uh, is just an overall remodeling, but we don't know how much of it has to do with uh, building the, T- the TELs. But yeah, a lot of people are expecting to see uh, these ICBMs on trucks rolling through Pyongyang in the military parade in October, on October 10th. Right, r-
0: remind our listeners, what is the uh, the big parade coming? What's the significance of it?
5: So it's the 75th anniversary of the founding of the ruling party, the Workers' Party of Korea. So, uh, yeah, huge celebrations. There's going to be a parade, a torch march uh, at night where they've got all the the young students holding the... Tiki torches. The
3: tiki torches. Yeah. All right. Uh, I
5: mean, it's... yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, and just should I explain the significance mm. of um, if we do see a lot of transporter erector launchers, we'll call them heavy launchers, um, that's going to be a really significant development and um, I urge everyone to look out for that. Just when when we see the parade, count how many of the ICBM and intermediate range ballistic missiles we see on heavy launchers. So the uh, North Koreans... So Afroans- this is how they're horizontally...
0: Uh- yeah. The the missiles are placed horizontally on the track.
3: Will they be labeled Hwasong-15? You'll be able to spot them if you know what the Hwasong series of missiles looks like. But the key thing is that these heavy launchers have been a big uh, stumbling block for North Korea. And it's kind of like a choke point in the country's nuclear weapons program. They imported six from China in, I think it was around 2010. Uh, They imported them as um, logging vehicles. To carry, you know, large uh-huh. logs that have been felled, um, and then they basically gave them a the paint job, uh, did some adaptations, and um, rolled them out uh, for these military parades. But because they only imported six, yep. it's not very good for deploying a large scale, a uh, large number of missiles. It's always been baffling to me how uh, a lot of foreign experts have said that this is very sophisticated technology that the North Koreans would struggle to make reliably. The transport record launcher. Yeah when they can Mm. make the actual Hwasong-15 missile, no problem. But the the TEL itself is deemed to be quite a big technical challenge. Um, I guess part of it is due to um, just the pressures and strains it needs to deal with. But um, if this facility, that uh, the factory that um, Kim Jong-un visited, that Colin has been watching, has actually made big strides in its development, then they may well be able to... Produce this. We know that they've started making large buses and things like that recently. Yeah. Um, and you tell us about the tires.
4: Oh sure. Uh, reviewing Chinese export data to North Korea in July 2020, uh, we see a really big bump in bus and lorry tires, or tires that are categorized for heavy uh, heavy vehicles. Right. So. Um, I think maybe this is a bit of speculation that never made it to my article, but we here internally do think they could be used for TELs.
5: Yeah. But we just don't have a site on what So TELs have a, a special
0: like. kind of tires normally, do they? Well, super large. They, yeah. Uh-huh. they
4: have, uh, yeah, super large with um, special treads. Uh-huh. Uh, and but unfortunately... The codes don't...
5: Yeah. So unfortunately,
4: unfortunately, the HS codes, the harmonized system, which um, almost the entire world uses when it comes to uh, shipping and trading items, oh. um, the HS codes don't give us the kind of granularity that uh, would tell us if they're TEL tires or not, mm. um, just that they're um, these kind of heavy duty tires for uh, buses and lorries.
0: Now, Colin, the other story that uh, I'm looking at from uh, your work last week was that uh, the China DPRK bridge to nowhere, as we like to call it, uh, that work uh, has stopped once again uh, amid new COVID-19 border controls. Uh, You know, I I have to say, before I saw that story, I thought this bridge was finally finished.
5: Yeah, so wait, so how much did this cost, Chad? Uh, Back They finished in 2013. million.
3: Sorry, how much? $350 $350 million. $350 million, so million
0: dollars to, build build to build one bridge from build Dandong China. to Shiniju.
3: Yeah. The outskirts. And it was completed around 2012, 2013. 2013 yeah. Eight years ago. Jang uh, Tech was purged. Oh. I think that may have been a contributing factor to why it never opened. You know, there was a lot of speculation about its ties to China. Right. Uh, currying favor and so on. But it's just been sitting... Abandoned until just ended in a the the the
5: nicely paved road and this nice perfect bridge just ends in a field in 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 North Korea until last uh just about a year ago they started to build this road finally uh to connect it to the nearby North Korean highway and they then they paved it they paved like one side of the I think it's like two lanes on each side and they paved one side earlier this year and they started Clearing the land for a customs area. And to, to me, it looks like quite a large area. Mm. Uh, it's like 85 football fields. That is very large. Uh, so um, it could be maybe an, a little special economic zone that I reported on a couple years ago that's supposed to be Chinese developed. Um, but who oh, knows? The, we, don't, the, we don't know the, yet. Uh, the,
0: the long-fated uh, Shiniju special economic zone run by China. That was uh, a, yeah. That was originally back in 2000 going to be run by Yang Bin.
5: Yeah, well, there's been so many different plans in, right. Years, right? in little islands and all sorts of SEZs. But uh, they started to clear the land, and you could see the bulldozers moving the land, uh, uh, trying to, to prepare the foundations on this giant area for a few months yeah. uh, earlier this year. But then, yeah, just in, in about mid-August, uh, all activity stopped there, and we think it's... Uh, Well, it it coincides exactly with uh, border controls uh, put in place ahead of this October celebrations. Um, What is it, Chad? uh, You reported last week on the problems that Moon Jae-in is is facing due to last week's border spat uh, between North and South Korea. And uh, one of the things you talked about was all the different border controls in North Korea. Mm. Yeah, and the
0: shoot-to-kill policy you mentioned, that, that also stems from this time, right? From August yeah exactly yeah. exactly okay so it makes sense i guess that uh, we're not going to be seeing anything happening on that uh uh cross-border trade or cross-border bridge building uh until those uh, covid restrictions are uh, are eased
3: at the very the very earliest yeah yeah
5: it's, it's weird though because they they did keep construction going for ah. the last you know throughout the the pandemic this year um and Uh, Daily NK reported last year that the bridge is that the the connecting highway is being managed by uh, a Chinese company. The construction, so there was probably some cross, some border crossing going on specifically for that bridge. But so he's saying that
0: physically, right now, a truck could drive from Dandong to Shiniju outskirts
5: over that bridge, and it would connect. There was video taken by daily okay. K of
3: vehicles crossing that bridge uh, this year mm. and don't uh, un sanctions prohibit countries investing in infrastructure projects in north korea well um, there's been a
5: we've reported on a lot of uh, direct evidence of chinese infrastructure <laughs> yeah. projects that would need uh, un approvals yeah. but we you know those kinds of things are out the window these right days. but but yeah so we just think it's an extra sensitivity towards covid right now just can't afford any exceptions to the rules uh, ahead of all these celebrations and it could last into january because of the eighth congress in january that's another huge celebration yeah right. that they probably can't afford to have uh, upended by an outbreak but uh a lot of that is unknown the, the covid situation
0: okay so the uh, the bridge to nowhere once again ends in a field of screams uh Minxiao, back to you you uh, wrote a story about medicine Sans frontier or doctors without borders last week
4: Yes, I they did.
0: were back in, or they they were in North Korea once back in the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s, right, from 95 to 98, yes. and they left because of uh, the difficulties of working with the government of Kim Jong Il. Uh, when did they return, and what have they been doing recently?
4: Sure, um, they returned for a brief period, very brief period, from around 2013 to 2015, providing limited um, education and humanitarian assistance. I think. Due to government difficulties and also perhaps um, a bitter experience their first time around, uh, they didn't want to engage in a very large-scale uh, program like they tried to do during the arduous march. Um, but they also returned uh, most recently in 2019. So that's what this report uh, was discussing. Uh, Doctors Without Borders spent $1.4 million in 2019, in its project on North Korea, mostly going towards two tuberculosis hospitals uh, in North Hamgyong province, where uh, North Korea's third largest city, Chongjin, is.
0: Now, are they focusing their energies mainly on multi drug resistant tuberculosis?
4: Yes, sir. Uh, they are mostly focusing on tuberculosis, uh, multi drug resistant tuberculosis. Um, it's a disease that unfortunately um, is quite rampant within North Korea, even though it's um, controlled elsewhere in the world. Uh, They also provided aid and education for um, childhood uh, development, malnutrition, and um, general community health building.
0: Now, we know that uh, MSF is, of course, not the only NGO working on multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. There's also the uh, the Eugene Bell Foundation, uh, headed by uh, Stephen Linton. Does the problem seem to be improving in North Korea in general, or is it actually a worsening situation?
4: That's a tough question that uh, I think maybe Medicine Sans Frontiers would be able to answer better. But we do know, due to the coronavirus pandemic and the reaction by both North Korea and South Korea, um, in closing their borders and instituting strict measures, uh, is that trade has been severely curtailed um, and imports of much needed medicines and goods have uh, been limited. Um, interestingly, we do know from a humanitarian aid shipment that was approved by the UN in September 2019, um, MSF was able to import parts for a Cephia gene expert system. Mm. Um, And what stood out to me looking at it now uh, is that not only can it do... It's a multi-test diagnostic system, so you can feed Uh it multiple tests. Um, They most likely imported it for the rapid test for tuberculosis, but it can also do COVID-19 tests. Sophia has produced COVID-19 tests that work for the gene expert system.
0: Ah. Okay. Well, that is interesting to watch there. So we hope that MSF will continue doing their... uh, their good work and very important work uh, in North Korea. Um, final thoughts, Minchow, before we finish up? Uh,
4: no, back to you. Okay, you.
0: Colin?
5: What's today? Today is... Uh, Monday the 29th, is September it? September 28th. So we've H. got the parade uh, and the celebrations coming up on October ten. I would just say I'm sure Kim Jong-un and the government uh, are working very hard to open up a lot of things ahead of the the October 10 holiday because they promised a lot of construction projects to open. So we're probably seeing things open here and there and uh, probably a lot of them won't be finished as probably a propaganda um, spree coming up. And we saw this begin a couple weeks ago when he opened up a a big, you know, the, what do they call it? The fairyland. Of new homes for flood victims Uh, and state media tried to pass that off as something built since august when in reality it was built since june so Mm. uh i would just say you know we're gonna see a lot of things open up and a lot of propaganda going on general hospital yeah the hospital how's that going it looks great on the outside and uh, i'm sure they will show us the inside uh, to some degree and we just don't know how successful they were at importing all these uh, badly needed uh, medical equipment so yeah the hospital probably gonna open once calma. calma we don't know i think mm. that was you, you i think it's not this... a priority to open up in winter especially yeah so. yeah
3: earlier this year i seem to remember you thinking or you'd seen somewhere that they changed the deadline to october 10th but that was before the floods right
5: yeah i don't
3: i don't know i i haven't checked into that recently but yeah. there's not going to be
5: a lot of demand no, not in shit. the winter. And then the and no tourism right now, so it's a yeah. weird time to open it up. But the yeah, the parade, uh, just watch for how many TEL. I mean, it's going to be an interesting time for, uh, I think, the U.S. to watch the signaling. The right, messaging. we're
0: only, what, 40 days out from the, uh, the U.S. Yeah, election? Yeah,
3: and there's also the prospect of SLBM testing or a new strategic weapon. I think that's less likely. The SLBM is probably more likely, but... You know, back in 2017, at the military parade, um, Oliver and I went to that one. And on this, the that was on April 15th, and on the 16th, they did a failed Musudan missile test. So we could expect to see similar pattern where Kim Jong Un will, you know, bring the holiday in with uh, something bookmarking the the celebration day or two before or after with SRBM. Uh, SLBM. Excellent. Um, well, let, let's get
0: back here two weeks from now for a uh, a post parade recap. Yeah, yeah,
3: we do. Yeah, we do need to get that. Yeah, and if, oh and I just point out we hmm. we are doing a live um, NK Pro career risk Group Open Access uh, Zoom call with uh, Andre Lankov and uh, Ankit Panda and myself on uh, October twelfth, the morning um, of Seoul, Monday morning at. I think it's 9am you can find the link on our website but we're going to be basically just going through uh images of new technology and also uh dr lankov will give us a bit of spin on the you know impressions from speeches and so on and i'm sure we'll do a podcast as well on the topic excellent
0: today. one more reason to subscribe to nk news and nk pro ladies and gentlemen Yes. Uh, So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to NK News and NK Pro for all your latest news and updates on what is happening north of the demilitarized zone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I've been Jacko's Wetsuit and we'll listen to you next time. Bye.